Welcome to Culture Meets Crypto, a podcast by Signum Growth that dives into the intersection of gaming, art, music, and crypto. Each week, Angela and Evan speak with iconic thinkers, thought leaders, and CEOs about the many new online economies and business models which are bubbling up in the metaverse. Welcome back, everyone, to the next episode of Culture Meets Crypto. Today, we're so excited to introduce Mark Seal, the founder and CEO of Sortium. We got to know Mark uh, maybe six months ago. Uh, we were completely blown away with um, the type of technology that he's integrating into the gaming world. And um, then we had the pleasure of hosting Mark on a Twitter Spaces at the end of October. We had Mark along with Lee Trink, the CEO of FaZe Clan, John Linden, the, the founder and CEO of Mythical, DJ Wright, the founder and CEO of Metagoons. It was an incredible lineup and we left really inspired. Uh, that that you know, kind of the original vision of Web three gaming that we had when we came into the space in 2018 um, was really kind of on the come, and uh, so you know it was it was really refreshing. We've had there's been a lot of negativity around NFTs, um, and there's been a lot of skepticism uh, among gamers. Uh, around NFTs. And we had William Intrican on the show, the lead author of the ERC-721 standard for NFTs. And when we featured him, he reminded me that when I met him back in 2017, 2018, he had said this first wave, uh, this first wave is, is, is something that he wanted to avoid, which was pretty prescient, even though he created the standard. He said, um, you know, there's going to be a lot of speculation and, um, you know, he even warned of rug pulls that could happen, uh, taking advantage of retail investors. And, um, you know, still though people, as we all know, uh, very sadly kind of fell prey to these. However, we are at a different point now. We uh, There's a lot more awareness. Um, that skeptic skepticism among gamers is very healthy. As always, uh, that gamer skepticism kind of raises the bar for publishers, raises the bar for creators. And um, so we are in, I think, this interesting period of a more level playing field um, in this um you know, among Web3 game companies with traditional publishers in that, um, you know, if we can get to this next vision of what um, is truly being demanded by gamers, um, there are going to be a lot of opportunities for publishers to fill those gaps. So anyway, our, our um, before I go to your intro, Mark, or for you to give your background, um, I just wanted to, to say that um, backdrop question, along with your intro that we'd love for you to dive into, is the same question that we had on the Twitter space, which was, um, you know, will hundreds of millions, if not billions of people uh, touch NFTs and games in the same way that they touch regular games? Um, but let's start with a with an overall intro of you and your background and kind of how you got to this place in life. Sounds good. And and thank you, Angie, and, and so much for having me on the show. Um, as as you said before, we've we've actually now been talking for quite quite some time. And even our original introduction was uh almost pretty happenstance. Um and and was an interesting story about how we just kind of got randomly introduced and and uh you thought the person that introduced us knew me and really I had just been having a conversation with them prior for 10, 10, 15 minutes. And they're like, you have to talk to Angie. <laughs> um that's right. So Excited to to be here and and very happy with uh, how we got introduced. Uh, my my background is um, kind of interesting, right? I, I mean, I started in in startups. Uh, really, like had had my own app development, um, small mobile game development. You know, long before uh, Web three started emerging. Uh, and then in the early days of, of Bitcoin, and then eventually Ethereum, I, I was very interested in the technology. And the applications of it. So, as an enthusiast, I, I stayed in touch um, with the various communities and invested in, in things as they they came up. Um, even you know, CryptoKitties when it launched, because I, I thought the idea was was extremely novel and had a lot of implications of uh, for for future of of content. And this was kind of the beginning of it all. And then, as I was working through my career, which was really in entertainment technology, mobile applications. Um, different uh, entertainment development products, gaming, I eventually ended up at the Tops company. 
and was managing and, and leading uh, the initiatives for the digital Star Wars uh, product licensing. Uh, so working very close with Lucasfilm, working very closely with the talent uh, that, that was playing. This is actually around the time of The Mandalorian starting. So getting to engage with the kind of the transition between the previous uh, trilogy that we just went through with Ray and Kylo Ren and uh, mm. interacting with that talent and those creative teams and then uh, moving into the initiatives for The Mandalorian and then stuck around even into some of the planning, early planning for the initiatives after. Uh, Mandalorian built on Mandalorian built on Unreal Engine. Sorry to uh, sorry to interrupt. That was a very exciting yeah, moment in, yeah. in media and yeah, in gaming. It, it, it's it was one of the craziest. Um, just to touch on that quick, I mean, it's, it's one of the craziest innovations I think in in film. Period. Right. I mean, having dynamic environments in film as opposed to having to just pick your locations and frame or pre-render stuff, they mm. were able to render a scene in high fidelity and as the actors are, are living in the scene they can see it on screen uh in the like if they're if i'm looking at the camera at the camera i can see what's being rendered behind me and as the camera pans the whole environment pans i mean it was a huge innovation so That's huge. and these are the kinds of, of innovations that are going to push i think web3 they're going to push ai um these kinds of technologies flow through the entertainment industry and that's that's what we're going to see but that, and that's actually where my background continued to evolve from is after this, I had been talking about the implications of Web3 integration uh, since the day I, I started with, with Star Wars. And I had helped some of the various other teams and because um, we also had licensing for Marvel, Disney, a bunch of sports properties. Eventually, I was asked to, to run a Web3 division. So I, I started a Web3 division, started staffing out a team with the goal that we would dive into uh, integration of, of NFTs and, and tokenized content. Um, and we had a lot of success. We introduced Garbage Pail Kids, Major League Baseball, Godzilla. So anybody who's a fan of Giant Monsters, we were we were the ones that introduced that deal with, with Toho. I think they've even done some other stuff now. Um, Bundesliga, UEFA. Then eventually I went on and did some strategization with uh, the Walt Disney Company, which I don't, I don't think those products are out yet, so can't go into too much detail on, on what that was. But um, working with with them and even getting to work directly with Michael Eisner, who is a legend from Disney. And and uh, yep. uh, nothing is quite as cool or as intimidating as getting an actual phone call from the man in the, in the middle of the day. Uh, and he's got <laughs> questions about tell me more about um, tokenization and a very, very intelligent uh, person was, was just really on it in the space and, and was on top of, of innovating in it and gave me the opportunity to build the tops business, which became a success. We made the tops NFT platform. We worked on a bunch of other stuff. And uh, during this time, we were very focused on collectibles and, and I saw the potential. Um, I had become very close with now my, my two co-founders and, we were just sitting there and we're like, we could do more, right? We're locked into collectibles because of licensing and business deals and, and everything. And, and even today, actually, our team, Sortium, is still supporting the, the Tops NFT platform. But uh, So we're still partnered with them. Um, but at the time, they're like, this. the implications of this are huge in gaming. And then our CTO, Alex, uh, I was talking about using genetics, simulated genetics in gaming and artificial intelligence and... Um, he is one of the front runners in, in AI technology and said, no, we, we can do this. Uh, and we can not just use Web3, we can use AI to drive so much. Um, and now I think people are seeing your, what started a year ago, right now, uh, we went through a wave of, of Web3 and, and that having a bunch of news and hype. And now with things like ChatGPT, uh, we're seeing a huge, and and even other tech, we're seeing a huge wave in AI. Um, and these are, this, this is where we've been building for the last year. And I think these are signals of what is to come and the pace at which this news is launching. You know, while, while there's some pushback on NFTs right now and, and tokenization, um, I think we'll go through a similar cycle in, in AI, and then you'll see these technologies blend into the, the content that we're using every day. So to take that and go to your question, yeah, I, I think every person that interacts with digital content within the next, I'll be conservative and say within the next 
10 years, if you interact with digital content, anything, any digital content, your phone, your shows, your music, whatever it is, if it is digital content, in some form, you will likely be interacting with tokenization. You'll never know it, but you'll likely be interacting with tokenization. And I think AI with Web3 is going to rapidly, over even the next year, transform the way we interact with digital content. Hmm. Okay, so you already had me uh, at Disney tops, uh, Star Wars. <laughs> um, and, you know, this idea, you know, we, the show is called culture meets crypto, because we're going, we're, we're thinking, let's, let's think further out many years out when we're at hundreds of millions of people, as we mentioned before. Um, so you understand those markets. And, and like you said, you're still working in them. But then you just dropped in to one of those sentences, gene editing. And that piece of what you're doing was completely mind-blowing to me. Can you walk us back and talk to us like, you know, we're brand new to this idea and uh, kind of tell us kind of how how is gene editing incorporated into what you're doing? Yeah, um, it's it's a pretty interesting story that, that goes back. The idea for this goes back actually to 2011. Um, and I was working on a game at the time in 2011 called CryptoGene. Before it had it meant cryptographic genetics. It, it had nothing to do with crypto uh, currency or tokenization, and it was a premise that I was working on with a, um, a, a bit of a different team then. Of how could we elevate what the the game genre of Tamagotchi and virtual pets? And I wanted to make something that was more mature, uh, something that felt engaging to to audiences that we're willing to put a little bit more um, cognitive power into, into the, the lore and the interactions behind what makes a virtual pet interesting and engaging. So I started designing this system, but it just couldn't be done, right? We wanted to do simulated genetic engineering. I'm not a geneticist. So the, the research involved with that was, was complicated and uh, felt very strongly that it could be engaging and, and interesting. And then uh, when we were looking for a game to build, with the technology that we had when it was myself and then my two co-founders, Evan and Alex, we were like, uh, you know, I was like, I, I had this old game that I was working on. I think it might be good for tokenization. And I was like, but we couldn't do it then. And Evan was bought in, Evan's our COO. And he was like, I, I think this could be cool. So we described it to Alex, who's our CTO. And uh, he just, he's like, well, I've been working with genetic simulations. Why don't we just gamify gene editing and we can do this using real genetic algorithms we can do simulated CRISPR gene editing and uh mm, i think my wow. first reaction was i was like you sure we can do this <laughs> and <laughs> um turns out we can and not only can we do it but we can integrate it with both ai and uh tokenization so that you get this kind of hybrid system of utilizing genetic algorithms uh, that make fantasy creatures. And then at the end result, you get this kind of tokenized DNA. And it's not about selling an NFT or selling a crypto. It's, it's about you have permanence of genetics the same way a person would. So you have actually the closest thing maybe, um, or the beginnings of it, we're still developing it, but the beginnings of what really could be a virtual pet. Right, you can't buy a cat or adopt a cat and just change its hair color, right, or do whatever you. Want. It has genetics. There's permanence to it. Um, yeah. But in theory, you could actually genetically engineer your cat and, and grow it and and have this. Uh, that raises a whole bunch of other ethical issues, maybe. But uh, those ethical okay. issues don't exist in the digital world. So you can have fun and explore these kind of concepts in a more fantasized um, and sci-fi-ish way. And that's what the whole idea of, of the game Cosmogene actually is. Um, so that's how we integrated gene editing and we're using real algorithms, um, gene editing algorithm or gene processing algorithms, right? To to create genetics behind all of the creatures that, that eventually people will, will play with. And you are, I think the way you described it to me is is you're using that to kind of regress these characters back to birth and then raise them in the game effectively. Yeah. So 
the premise that we're working on executing right now. Um, so with it, a lot of the tech is built and we're, we're now gamifying it, making it uh, user-friendly is the, the general process of what happens is we use our, um, we use a procedural system. So for anybody unfamiliar, like a lot of games have proceduralness to them, right? So where things are dynamic, a creature or a character may have certain traits and features that are not uh, predefined, but you have predefined attributes. Um, so we're looking to take that kind of a step further. And we're utilizing a system that we built to create what's called synthetic data. Think of it as we create the bone structure of, of what a creature could look like based on a number of, of different attributes and things that we, we define. And that's what kind of seeds the whole process so that you have something. Um, all of which will eventually get encoded in DNA. But that's step one. Step two, then, is it runs through an AI system that's utilizing a genetic algorithm to say, okay, we're taking this bone structure and we have a target, right? There's various environmental attributes and things that this creature that is built from this bone structure needs to evolve into to match this targeted result. So the AI then takes that initial model, which is the bone structure, and evolves it over many generations to create what it thinks is a viable uh, creature. Um, it's similar to the process that's used called stable diffusion, which anybody who's looked at Midjourney or um, Dolly 2, it's similar, but targeted and iterative on itself. So mm. that's what uses the genetics. You get an end result. And then once we have the end result, we say, okay, this is what it's going to grow into at, at this stage but now we want the player to grow it. So they don't even get to see that. The, the AI is doing all this, but it then takes that and de-ages it with uh, a, like a, a fetus essentially, right? Like what an embryo. So it takes an embryo uh, structure and de-ages it down to um, something that you can see floating in a tank and then grow over time into that end result and then interact with that creature. So that's that's kind of the technical process of of how we, we achieve that. Um, and it's probably much more complicated than that on, on the back end, but effectively mm -hmm. that is, is what we're doing. Yeah. Evan, I know you had a follow-up question on that. Do you want to jump in here? Sure. I mean, the one thing that I keep thinking about is like, you know, when people first interact with this game, how is the experience of using these NFTs going to be different than say when people first use CryptoKitties or Axie Infinity? And then even with that, how is it different than, or how will it be different than when gamers are, you know, loading up Fortnite or another game versus loading up um, Cosmo Gene? Yeah, so I think the the holy grail, right, to try and target is that it shouldn't feel, and, and no, no, nothing against Axie Infinity or CryptoKitties, right? But fundamentally, it shouldn't feel like those at all. The fact that there is a distinction between your experience of what we're saying is what is the difference between a game and CryptoKitties or Axie Infinity, right? If there can be that distinction made, then that's the exact issue that we're facing today is there is enough of a distinction that somebody's not saying this game is different because they can quantify the experience um, and the emotional difference that they're feeling just from the fact that cryptocurrency and NFTs are integrated because it's created boundaries um, and it hasn't created enough new value, let's say, that that to the gameplay, right? So the the goal with Cosmogene is to fix that approach. And I think even Axie Infinity and, and maybe CryptoKitties and other games, they're, they're looking to fix those approaches as well so that they can capture larger game audiences. Um, it's just that we're in a position in which before we even launch, we can try and, and ensure that that stuff is resolved. Mm -hmm. Now, the way that we do that is you're, you're engaging, all content is, is tokenized in Cosmogene. Um, kind of the, the, the point of what we're doing is that everything is tokenized. And the reason for this is not, again, so we can sell you a token or sell you NFTs. It's so that you have a proper accounting system that one, our AI systems can monitor. And we do this so that we can self-balance the game. And this gets into a whole other, there's a, there's a whole bunch of complexity behind the the technology that we built so that we can do self uh, scalability with the game, uh, monitor economies, actually have the creatures generated. But one issue with, I would say, Web3 games is the process to make it, right? It's a gamified process that generates an NFT. 
but the process you went through isn't tokenized. So how do you account on that? It's no different than Call of Duty. So you've added a layer of complexity, but you haven't actually provided the value proposition all the way through the creation of the asset. So you not only created a, a disruption point in, in gamer flow, you don't have any traceability on the person's actions that created that. So you're still living in a world of complete speculative value. You don't know the proper user time or effort it took to make an asset. So with everything being tokenized in Cosmogene, um, and again, it's not to buy a token. It's just so that there is a chain somewhere that is recording the data. Um, and this is like choosing your server. What server backend are you going to use? And we're using blockchain as a server backend, not so that we add layers of complexity, but so we add a layer of accountability. And the game engine will track users' actions, will tokenize that so that it's transparent, and then will generate assets in accordance with that accounting. So when somebody creates a creature, it took effort and it took certain actions to do that. And you know that for every creature that exists, nobody was able to skip the line or, or uh, cheat their way through the system or reduce the value that that value input had to come from somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, so everything you're doing is tokenized. Even if you have an in-game currency, it's tokenized just so that we have proper accounting on it. And then the AI has a proper way to balance all of this. And then as far as the, the NFTs, which the, the creatures, the Cosmera are NFTs in their own right. Um, they're again, it, it's not something you're going to interact with them in the game. You don't have to go to OpenSea. You don't have to go, uh, you don't have to even have a wallet uh, necessarily. We'll custodialize all of that for you and, and give the ability to have the freedom to control assets as you choose, but um, you should be able to just play. So the user experience is you, you go to the website, our game engine runs in a browser. So you don't have to download anything. You go to cosmogene.com, you, you scroll through the website or you just click play. You're in the game and you can do everything in the game. Uh, we're building a Discord integration. So a bunch of actions, you know, even taking care of your creature, uh, eventually battling things like this, you'll be able to do in in Discord. Um, just maybe you're on your mobile phone. You don't, it's not able to run the game, uh, which mobile phones will be able to run the game. But, you know, for some reason you don't have time to do that. You could go on Discord, talk to your friends who are also playing, send them something, ask them to take care of your creature. That's the, the kind of experience you're going for. And all of this is interacting with NFTs, right? It's about a fluid engagement, um, not saying, you, nobody has to go out and say, oh, well, I need to buy this NFT. I need to stake this. And it's, it's all integrated into the core game function. Hmm. Yeah, I definitely want to get into that. But just to summarize in terms of on the tokenization point, you're saying everything is tokenized uh, in the game, even though there's no, quote, token, uh, specific token being launched as part of the game uh, as currency. Uh, is that right? Yeah, exactly. There's there's nothing being sold uh, to you that is a token. We don't want you to buy a token and hold on to it and speculate. And um, and if there is ever a moment where we launched a token in which you could cash out on, it would be explicitly for uh, utilization, right? It would, so we don't have a token um, at launch that you can liquidate. Uh, there will be currencies in the game that you use in the game. You won't be able to trade them necessarily between each other. You won't be able to move them into a wallet and cash them out for ETH or anything. Um, it's really focused on gameplay. And then if and when it makes sense to provide liquidity to users, uh, so long as that value has some kind of backing, I think the issue is the speculation, right? When yeah. value is purely speculative, projects bottom out. But if we can, and part of the goal is to eventually that if there is going to be liquidity of any kind, it must be backed by revenue generated by the game. So if players are spending, that will provide the opportunity. If a pl another player has provided value that another person can buy, um, it doesn't mean an item necessarily. There's all kinds of ways that this works. This is not necessarily just about, I made an NFT, I want to sell it. Um, but these models work in games today. Uh, you, if you play World of Warcraft, people will buy items from you or people will buy in-game stuff from you. But that's only achievable because there's a value for that in the game to begin with. And mm -hmm. when that value exists, those markets emerge naturally. 
So our job will be to support the emergence of that behavior as opposed to combat it the way that traditional gaming does today. Uh, and that would be the moment in which we could provide some kind of liquidity basis to users. So day one, no, no tokens sold, you don't buy anything. If you're going to spend any money, it's going to be specifically on, on gameplay time. There's AI resources that are, are used to make uh, Cosmera. So there might be some kind of, um, you know, like fee structure or transaction structure for things like that, but uh, no, no cryptocurrency being sold to anybody. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, one of the things you said um, that really resonated with me was play to earn is just should be called expensive to play. <laughs> and I think that uh, John Linden said play to work. And that is, you know, kind of the way we had, you know, that resonated as well. And, um, you know, play and work really don't go together. And so the idea that you're playing the game because it's fun and because you're it's engaging and because you're, you know, doing things in the game and utilizing your uh, various pieces that are tokenized, um, I think that makes a huge amount of sense for sure. Um, can you just talk a little bit about, we've started to see AI roll out in games and, um, you know, it's, it's, um, it might be real. How would you say you're seeing it in these early days and how will Sortium roll it out in a different way or similar? Yeah, so um, honestly, AI is uh, over the last six months, it's one of the, between AI and Web3, it's the most rapid advancement in technology I think we've ever seen. And, you know, for some of the pushback, I, I think, or the pushback that exists around NFTs and Web3, has masked a lot of the progress um, where, where it's not as apparent as what's truly there. Um, I think people see the progress a little bit more with AI, but the innovations that we're seeing did not happen over years, right? Mm -hmm. the, the advancement that we've seen from, let's say, mid-journey, generating an image from prompt to chat GPT, which is... I mean, anybody who looks at you, you look at customer service bots that talk to you and just how kind of wonky they were. You, you look at assistants like Google or Amazon, responses are limited. It's not very, it's somewhat intuitive, but not super intuitive, uh, feels limited, hasn't super taken off, right? You see Siri, you see all these other implementations, but looking at something like ChatGPT, where you could get, you, you could have a whole conversation. I mean, this thing could pass, could borderline pass a Turing test, and you might not even know that you're talking to in AI. Um, mm. And we we went from one to the next in such a small amount of time. And now uh, GPT-4 is already done. It's not available publicly, but from a yeah. technological standpoint, it's done. So now getting into the implement uh, implications this has had in gaming, um, starting with something like Midjourney, I mean, you've had studios drop a lot of their concept art team. And I think this has raised a lot of concern around, well, is everybody's jobs going to get replaced with AI? Mm. Uh, the, the answer the answer is no, though. The answer is no. Your, your job is not going to get replaced with AI. What it's going to do is it's going to empower the people who embrace it. A concept artist who is a good concept artist is far more um, equipped to leverage AI around concept art development than you or me. If yep. we we can compete with a concept artist that doesn't have AI, but we'll never compete with a concept artist that is using the same tool that we are because they can go in, they can make changes, they can drive the vision. Uh, AI is only mimicking what the rest of the world has done before, ultimately. It's not really creating. It's taking the knowledge that's out there and spitting it back out in a meaningful way as you have made a request. And you can leverage this to do new things. So it's being done for concept art. We're seeing um, AI be integrated for like NPCs and how you might engage with those NPCs. And it does create the opportunity for dynamic content, but it has to be fueled from somewhere. So there's there's two different aspects, right? I, I think uh, teams currently, like AAA teams that would require 2,000 people. And and I mean, these it's not scalable, right? The, the revenue models with games have not evolved in the same way that the... Um, necessity of staff has has evolved. Mm. There, these games are making similar revenue and, and making similar numbers as they did uh, almost a decade ago. 
and the the teams required to produce more advanced games has exponentially increased without the revenue increasing. So what this will allow is creative teams to leverage these tools and develop much faster. Um, and I think we'll see unique implementations across the board that we just, uh, things that we wouldn't even be able to come up with here, right? Somebody's going to come up with some unique implementation of AI and it's going to be disruptive and beautiful. And um, I mean, even that's what ChatGPT was. So, you know, for, for Sortium, what we're doing, right, we're utilizing AI to create creatures, true proceduralism. So being able to to have genetics that are tied to your your creature and and how that's going to interact um we're talking about utilizing something called multi-agent human in the loop learning which is a type of, of ai learning system in our battle system so uh it won't be in our first battle system that we make for the creatures but it it is something that we're planning for maybe end of year uh, where instead of like Pokemon, where you pick a move and they you battle and you feel like you're controlling a puppet, mm-hmm. we want to create the experience that you're really engaging with a partner. So how do we do that? Well, if we can have dynamic learning um, and we can leverage this where each creature has its own AI structure that's again tied to its DNA and, and its tokenized backend, right? You can't go in and just change it. Your experiences leave a permanent mark on the creature you're engaging with. Um, even if you were to trade it away, it's going to remember the person that it was engaging with before, literal memories that you could see on chain, and then wow. it's going to have new experiences with the person there after it. This is what we're targeting so that you can train with and and have like mock battles with your creature, and that's going to impact how it battles other people. And if it interacts with a creature it's never seen before, some some attack or some something it's never in- encountered it's not going to be prepared. If you trained it and you exposed it to that, it'll be more prepared. Uh, so these are the kinds of dynamic engagements that we're we're looking at getting into um, and how we leverage AI. So making it feel very integrated. Uh, we're also, we, we are a tech company at, at heart. So it's a lot of the tech that we're working with, we, we built. Um, so the game engine, uh, our AI engine, which can use many models. So things like ChatGPT, we can utilize the models that ChatGPT is using, but expose it to the game engine and, and game development processes. Uh, so we're looking at providing kind of a collective of tools that lets developers come in and, and do similar uh, accomplishments that we're doing with Cosmogene a little bit easier, right? So having a good game engine that is designed to work with AI, generate synthetic data for interpretation by AI, um, leveraging tokenization tools and and giving infrastructure, servicing that for gamers and game developers, uh, and then doing incredible things with it. So we're, we're even working on our own uh, kind of culmination AI tool. So we have our core tech, that's the game engine. And mm-hmm. we're working on a tool right now that allows you to work with an AI through your entire content development pipeline, right? So imagine a chat GPT um, that's working with you inside of a game engine. You want it to create a tree. It gives you a tree. You can then make adjustments with it. Then you could take it into like your 3D editor, like Unreal Engine or something, make additional adjustments. Your AI tool is right there. You could have it help you and really empowering creators um, throughout their, their content development pipeline. Also allowing new indie developers or, or just even you or me, maybe we want to create something. We're not developers, um, but now we'll have mm-hmm. tools and access to things so we can we can bring our visions to life, even though we don't have the professional skill set that would have been required even six months ago. It really takes the concept of blockchain to another level. And, and you know, we work closely with ARK Invest and Kathy is always, uh, Kathy Wood at ARK is always talking about this idea of, of this um, convergence of AI and blockchain. And something just clicked when you were talking about the idea that, let's say you're battling a character and you leave a, 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 a you know, a print on that character that is you. And um, then I might want your character because you've battled that character and I know that you're a great player and you've left a great print on that character. And then also the idea that that character will remember you and me, and then I sell it to Evan, Evan takes that character. I mean, that, uh, takes provenance. It puts another kind of, you know, 
layer on top of provenance that makes uh, makes it much more interesting than just who owned this or what's the what was the path of ownership of this of this character. Yeah, I, I think it it also helps create real emotional um, permanence with these, whether it's cosmogen characters or it could even be collectibles, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there's I, I can leave a mark, quote unquote, on, for instance, I collect magic cards, right? Um, and if I buy a rare card and I've held on to it, maybe I played with it and it's worn it out a little, just a little bit small it could be a small mark here it could be it could be nothing but then i trade that or sell it to somebody else and and it, there's kind of a lineage of of passing assets down and, and that exists in physical assets um and even your your car whatever it might be there's there's always this kind of permanence of this mark you left and there's not really been a great way to quantify that in the digital world because there there isn't necessarily any permanence there and that's where blockchain, I think, really can uh, provide value. Is it's your it's it's your data, but it, it's permanence to your interactions with that that data. Mm-hmm. You know, I kind of want to ask you, Mark, a little bit about some of the misconceptions people have about AI because we've only been talking about, or majority, we've been talking about. Um, the really cool kind of positive attributes of how AI will be used in games. Um, but there's a lot of fear around AI, especially from the artist community um, who have seen AI kind of replicate artworks and mimic styles. Um, you know, what are some of the main misconceptions that you know of regarding AI and maybe even some of the ethical implications in, in using the technology? Yeah, so um, kind of what I was saying before, right? A- AI is trained off of data sets. And today, the data sets that, are, that it's trained off of are other people. So AI is, of course, mimicking work because AI is not inspired. People are inspired. AI cannot be inspired, but it can be trained. So it mimics inspiration in that it won't have an original thought, but it will compile what appears to be an original thought based off of what it has seen. And something like ChatGPT which for the first time in history has been trained off of the vast majority of human knowledge on the internet um, up to 2021. So it's missing information from 2022, but it has been trained up to 2021. You, you can see this. This is why the results are so comprehensive and can feel new and unique um, because it can compile what feels like something new out of a bunch of different people's ideas and can, tr- can try and uh, with pretty good accuracy give you what you're asking for. Um, so, you know, I mean, there's there's some warranted fear in that it can utilize all of that data to help progress various industries such as art. Um, the reason we're seeing potentially like a mimic of watermarks or a style or something is because that's exactly where the, where the AI was trained from. It looked at all information out there um, and that is its inspiration, right? Mm-hmm. But it can't actually be inspired. So it can't, uh, it's not going to do something totally new in, in that sense. Um, but it does mean repetitive tasks and even artistic ones, it's now going to be able to do. So it could potentially create new art for something based on styles and what it's been trained on. Um, it can then make music that goes along with that. It could make characters and then various other things that'll go along with that all based on what its training was. Um, but who told it to do that? Somebody had to tell it to do that. So a person thought to ask for, I want, um, I want to make a game like the legend of Zelda, but I would like to do it in the art style of, uh, Bloodborne, which is another game out there, darker tone, right? It's going to produce maybe art. It might start produ- as we get into this, it could start producing complete code, but there's still somebody in the driver's seat. So that person in the driver's seat had their vision and inspiration going to hyperdrive by AI. And that's what AI right now is going to do. It's not going to think on its own and 
and decide on its own that it's going to make everybody's jobs obsolete. Um, and I, I think part of the, part of the misconception here, and maybe one of the a good, maybe a good comparison, maybe not is even going back to horse drawn carriages, right? The automobile, uh, gave a lot of pushback, huge disruption. Now you don't need horses. So people that race horses, they might go out of business. Those jobs might get replaced. And, um, you have all kinds of implications of when there's a, a big jump in, in technology about how that's going to, um, potentially disrupt the, the market, whose jobs it might take, but those, those people, it's our responsibility as technology evolves. Uh, it's our responsibility to really embrace it and use it to empower ourselves. Um, so I don't, I don't know if that totally answers the question, Evan, but it's like, we, we need to embrace the technology and use it to our advantage because that's what it is. AI is a tool and we can develop and evolve with it and do thousands of times more than, than we could have done, uh, without it. Or we can sit by and say, well, it's going to replace my job. And then, and then your fears are valid. Yeah. It's going to replace your job if you do nothing. But it's not going to replace your job if you use it as as a tool. Yeah, that that definitely answers it. We're we're in a very interesting grace period. It sounds like of getting used to the technology. It'd be like if if you were to interview somebody today, and you you said, okay, um, you know, great great interview. Thanks for coming into the office. What is your what's your email or phone number I can reach you on? And they're like, oh, I don't I don't use that. <laughs> like, well, well, we're at well, we're a, we're, we're a game studio and we're making a video game. We're like, yeah, well, I do all my art on paper, right? It's like the, the, the Wacom tablet didn't make artists obsolete. It empowered good artists to do more. Uh, mobile phone and email and all these things, they're, they're all tools. Um, AI is just maybe one of the most disruptive tools, and there might be a bigger learning curve to how we integrate it. But it's, it's the same. And if people evolve with it, they will have a lot more uh, opportunity and as other jobs become obsolete even you know mcdonald's talking about automation of of their um their restaurants well that that's fine there's gonna be maybe you won't have a job anymore for for minimum wage employees to to serve people but that doesn't mean that you're not going to have other jobs emerge and those other jobs might be way more fulfilling and might provide opportunities for them to develop way more valuable skills um, at that that level. So it's just all about general advancement. And I think there's every time that there's something majorly disruptive, we see we see concern, we see pushback. And uh, now because this is impacting such a, a prominent industry, um, and maybe all industries in, in some way, we're seeing a lot more news about it. But I, I don't think it's any different. Can we talk about the early waves of uh, 10,000 10,000 PFPs of certain, you know, apes, certain, you know, various types. You made a comment uh, to me at one point that these are ironically counter to the ethos of inclusion that we originally got into crypto for. Um, having said that, you also think a lot about rarity and scarcity and with your background at tops uh, and your background in, you know, trading cards generally. How do you think about um, the evolution here? If we're not going to stick with the 10,000 PFPs, um, how, how, how will this play out? I think there's a, there's a time and a place, right? The, but the market leaning heavily towards scarcity as a value proposition driver um, doesn't equate to mass adoption and doesn't equate to scalability. So there's, there's a big difference between artificial scarcity, which is used all over the entertainment industry in, in every form, right? Um, coming from cards, trading cards, and also being a huge fan of collectible card games uh, and trading card games, right? It's, uh, there, but there's something for everybody. I could still go, I could go into any hobby store and buy a, a pack of baseball cards. Um, I could go into any game store and, and get a, a pack of magic cards and open something that doesn't mean i'm getting the most valuable thing but there's something to do and that is inclusive and it feels like web3 took the exclusive part component and just totally forgot about the fact that 
there's some kind of inclusion in, in all of these mechanisms so that everybody can enjoy it. And then the few people that want to have the elevated experience have a medium to, to do so. So you end up with things like Board API Club, which I, I mean, I, I even, I own a, a mutant and it's cool, but if something like that were to launch today, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be a customer um, of it because I, I don't see the, the global, you know, utility of it. So they're, they're cool novelties um, in that sense, but they're very exclusive to the point where, you know, it's, it's, it's like, if there's, um, if the whole thing, if the whole brand is exclusive and to the point where nobody can, can have it or, or 10,000 people can have it, it's such a drop in the bucket that it may as well have no value. Hmm. And brands like Board Ape have done okay because they were the first. So they, they've established and now there's a demand for it and, and people want it and, and they're doing a decent job at continuing to expand that um, culture so that they do get more people involved in, in their various uh, kind of brand expansion product lines. But um, new, new PFPs that are launching it's, and they're doing 10,000, who, who's going to consume that? I mean, if you want to expand your brand into a user base, like let's say uh, Call of Duty has or something, I mean, 10,000 10, might as well be one or zero. Mm-hmm. Um, I think World, World of Warcraft even just did a, they, in their last BlizzCon conference, they did an overview of who had all the different mounts that they, what are the top 10, I think it was top 10 or top 100 even rarest mounts that they did a whole presentation on. And, you know, as they got to like the top five rarest, they, those numbers got pretty low, but I think in that top 100, there was like only, only a million people have this mount only, right? only <laughs> so mm-hmm. ten thousand is, is like top 10 rarity and somebody will want that because the community is so broad but it's not it's it's a rounding error on the user base literally it, it can actually be a rounding error on on the user base calculation so these projects at those, at those numbers they can't scale and hmm. and they're not going to um, right. so I, I think it just creates, it creates a really bad barrier to entry. Um, it creates kind of a toxic environment. And if that is your only value proposition, uh, and I think we've seen most, most of them have already failed. I mean, most of the mm-hmm. profile pictures are not worth anything near that, that they were when they launched. And that includes yeah. board Ape, right? Even board apes has all of it has gone down very, very substantially. I think the floor on a board ape was like half a million dollars at one point. And now they're fifty thousand, mm-hmm. uh, which is still expensive. And, and still, and still, <laughs> like you said, that's still expensive for the average person. Yeah. If you want to go after hundreds millions of users, um, you know, I know that um, you know. Uh, well, I don't know this, but I, I um, will ask about brands and IP and games. I know you know a lot about IP licensing and rights, IP rights, uh, based on your past. So. Um, will that ever be a part of the game? I don't know if it is yet, but it, will it be a part of the game? And um, maybe just to start, can you talk about that? Because that's something that's really held me back um, in Web3 Gaming is this idea that IP rights within an NFT don't really travel and brands to date that we speak to don't really feel confident that their rights will be protected into the future. How do you think about IP rights in combination with NFTs? So I think IP rights, it's tricky because if it's a big brand, then the the IP rights are very complicated. And a lot of companies will do what's called, or what we refer to as splicing, where one brand will give very explicit um, licensing of that IP to 20, they'll just cut it up and give it to 20 different people. So something like a sports licensing might give digital collectibles to somebody like tops, but then they might give collectible gaming to somebody else. And then they might give, um, interactive gaming to somebody else. And then they'll Hmm. give digital products. You know, they'll come up with terms and they, they really kind of narrow, uh, your ability. So this was an issue early on in, in web three and licensing. Um, a lot of companies did this and we're going to see the effects of this for the next several years where products are limited. You'll some, somebody like Disney 
they they make sure that if they'll splice and stuff out, but then when they want to partner with somebody on, on a comprehensive product, they they'll be able to do it. That's not the case with everybody. Some of the sports licensing, that was not the case, right? So we'll see some of this impact um, across the board. And that might even be some of the reason why somebody like Fanatics has gone out and purchased a number of different businesses, because then they can compile that into to one comprehensive licensing um, kind of overview or renegotiate those terms. But mm. I think we'll see the impacts of this for a little bit where uh, that's the case. Uh, Cosmogene, we're not necessarily looking for um, licensing, right? It, it's still very focused on a game, but you raised a good point, right? Uh, owning an NFT, which kind of the, the initial value proposition was that you really own it. And if you don't own the digital rights to it, do you really own that asset? And uh, we're, we're talking about some limitations within that, right? Like if you own the character, if you have the character, can you use that character in something? Um, the truth is we don't, we don't know because we don't want to impact or negatively impact the gaming aspect of what we're doing. Mm -hmm. So we need to ensure that the um, entertainment value comes first. That's mm -hmm. that's our most important thing with Cosmogene. Uh, but I do think it's a good question to raise, right? Like, what is the value of that to somebody? And I think it's mixed, right? The the value of owning your, even, even in Cosmo Gym, right? Like if I'm just a player, is there really any value in me being able to make a product out of that? Maybe, maybe no. Right. Right. And if, right. and if we're going for a broad audience where we can have a million people playing, is there really that much value? Um, you know, and then maybe, maybe the approach is just being more, more free in your, your, um, how you treat your content, right? Like, do do we even care if somebody wants to make a T-shirt out of their creature? Uh, so, do we want to put that licensing term in in um, in ownership of it? And then, how do you really do that in a scalable manner? So, I I think there's a lot of questions to be raised. And I, mm -hmm. I, I don't have I don't have the answer honestly. I, I think it's a, a yeah, learning it's, experience it's, for us. Yeah, it's super interesting. It's it, it's complicated, like you say, and you can see let's say a certain group of characters in Cosmogene evolving in a certain way. And all of a sudden that community gets together uh, because maybe there were people who started trading amongst each other. And then they said, Hey, why don't we take these characters and create a new game or, you know, let's do, let's do something else uh, with them. And at that point, maybe the tech uh, and the, and, and the, you know, and Cosmogene itself has evolved to the point where, communities start demanding to build stuff with their characters that they own. I mean, it, it'll be really interesting over time to see how that'll, that will evolve. Yeah. And you actually just raised a good point too, that I think we could touch on, which is just, I do feel like a lot of games and a lot of web three content creators or we'll say content creators, um, they're generating baseline content and trying to give licensing or things. And their hope is that the community will come in and, and build what they haven't effectively Right. And that's another thing to address, right? Like as entertainment providers, um, it's great that we can maybe build some characters and we're trying to include people early and we're like, okay, you could go out and make your own stories. And there's there's a novelty to that. But people are typically engaging because they they want to consume the content that you as the creator is building. So if you're right. there's the content, a novelty to that in the same way there's a novelty to choose your own adventure books novelty <laughs> yeah and and that's exactly like my my fear would be i don't i don't want like fan fictions are cool i guess right but that's what it feels like it feels like a fan fiction and if i'm mm. playing the next if the next world of warcraft right style game big brand comes out whoever makes it and they've developed this world i want to live in the world that they made for me right you made yeah. that content for me to experience I want you to tell me the story. I want you to let me feel like I'm living in it. And yeah. maybe I have an impact on that world and that's great, but I don't want to literally have to make it. Um, mm -hmm. If I want to mm -hmm. do that, I could go play like Roblox or Minecraft or, or something that is explicitly a tool. If all content becomes a creation tool, then who's making the content? Yeah, yeah. And also you could be, you could be making things, uh, you know, within the world for your character. You could be, 
you know, similar to, you know, kind of um, one stat that I got really excited about with Epic Games is that 40% of time spent was in creative mode. And that gets to this behavior change that we're seeing, uh, which is that, you know, younger generation players, my daughter is 11 years old and she has a Roblox store where she has sells dresses and um, she wants to do that. And she wants to invite her friends to the store and compare and contrast dresses, sell things to each other. Um, that's creative. And that is, um, you know, she's adding to that, but the backdrop and the choices, um, however many choices there might be, is really provided by the content creator, the the publisher. Um, so exactly, and they and they provided a they provided a story, they provided a reason for you to make mm -hmm. that content, right? There's a reason uh, for that store to exist, so you get to be a part of the overarching story, and you get mm -hmm. to have an impact, a direct impact upon that story but you didn't have to write the story, make the characters. You mm -hmm. got to cement your involvement in the story. And I think that's one of the key differences here, right? Um, where if even a lot of the profile picture stuff, I mean, it, it, we've seen this a lot where it's like, okay, here's some foundational stuff and there's no story and go out and go make a game with these assets. And somebody has to provide that initial value. Yep. Yep. Super interesting. Um, okay, well, I want to give you last words here. This has been great as always, Mark. I feel like I could ask you a lot of different questions about things not related to Cosmogene, which I always want to do, but I think this is a podcast focused on Cosmogene, focused on, on you. Um, just give us some last words and and maybe some hints into what's coming for Cosmogene. Absolutely. Um, so anybody who's, who's liked what they've heard, uh, you could come to Cosmogene. I think it's Cosmogene or discord.com slash Cosmogene or discord.gg slash Cosmogene. But go to it, the Discord is just Cosmogene. We'll, <laughs> so, we'll put it um, in the we'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> there we go. That'll make it that'll make it much easier. Uh, so join our Discord, check out our development. We're we're going through a process right now of kind of re um, revamping our community, getting ready for marketing um, as well, and planning our first experiences uh, that people are going to be able to engage in. Uh, where we're we're always online and, and available, so people can come in and and they can talk directly to us. Um, where we try and answer as many questions as possible. So love engaging as far as stuff that's that's coming. Uh, we already have the initial version of the game engine kind of online. So if you go to the to cosmogene.com, you can actually kind of scroll through an initial um, experience. I think it's a little laggy. Well, we're looking to push an update, I believe, this week. Um, that'll fix some of the the performance, but including people early, just letting you see, you don't have to buy anything. Just come in, take a look, see what's going on. And uh, we're, we're going to have a, a bunch of gameplay that's, that's coming out all focused around um, really think of it like the next generation of, of Tamagotchi or, or Digimon V pets, right? We're looking to really push that. So base features will be uh, coming out and then we're going to expand on those features as we go. So um, get ready to come in and genetically engineer Cosmera. Evan, what a great episode with Mark Seal from Sordium. You know, one of the value propositions that we think of when we talk about tokenizing items in games is that they can actually be created and owned by players. So ultimately, these players will help shape the games that they love. And in this case, the players will get an assist in that creative process from AI. Hmm. You know, Mark brought up that point that this first phase of NFTs hasn't really been about creativity or fun, but mostly about speculation. And at Signum, we've been talking a lot about the idea that the crypto time horizon and the game development time horizon don't match up. It takes a lot longer to make good games. So since we're only five years into this market or so, we're really only seeing now these good, these better games hitting a wider market. Um, and compared to those, those games that focus on speculation with NFTs, Mark and the Sordium team are treating NFTs more as a way to record data and enhance the Tamagotchi-like experience with recorded memories rather than create that speculative environment. So we're not going to be seeing a 10K cap supply like we've seen with PFPs or Metaverse land sales. Mm -hmm. And also the IP licensing discussion was interesting. That's an area of expertise for Mark. Uh, and, and it's an area that we talk a lot about um, as an incredibly, incredibly powerful tool to bring in players. Mark used the term splicing, which means distributing pieces of an IP license to different 
entity. So one can get a license uh, agreement for an in-game skin, another gets a branded race car, et cetera. Uh, so in that way, you know, we could start to see NFTs as this really valuable um, licensing tool because they're verifi verifiably unique pieces of data. And, um, you know, right now, there's a lot of confusion about how those IP rights travel between chains and marketplaces. We haven't seen yet, and, and we're hoping to see it in my NFT, um, but we haven't seen yet a platform that allows uh, or a technology that allows these IP rights to remain intact. So as IP rights become a hotter topic for NFTs, it's possible that we will see NFTs solve for a more efficient and transparent way uh, uh, of IP licensing in digital environments. And hopefully it'll all be happening in the background and we won't be using the term NFT. <laughs> An important point to end on, I think, is AI and how Mark described its use in games. It enables rapid storyboarding, concept design, deeper analytics of user activity, and it can also be applied to in-game experiences, experiences like Cosmera's, the in-game characters. Yeah, in Cosmogene, procedural generation, which is a type of AI, is used to systematically alter the creatures based on who holds them, meaning the wallet that holds them, and what they do with them. So that data is then cemented onto the blockchain, creating a really unique record of a digital pet. Um, so we can kind of imagine how that AI record can transform lineages, deepen the provenance of in-game items, because not only could you buy an item from, say, a celebrity, like your favorite streamer, that item will have tangible effects from how that celebrity used it that you could then use in your own game. Mm -hmm. Great. So that's a wrap on another episode of Culture Meets Crypto. Thank you for listening. And thank you to my co-host, Evan Castelli. We will see you all next week. <laughs>